Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Seeker Plus today. I am Trace. Today we're going to rebroadcast episode 27 about renewable energy. We're going to dig really deep into if we actually need it. What are the best kinds of energies? What are some crazy alternative energies? And what countries are the best at renewable energy right now? Or at the time when this episode was actually recorded, because this is a rebroadcast. We're even going to talk about nuclear energy just as a whole, because Julian Huguet loves it, and he is the special guest for this episode. So get ready, coming at you, renewable energy. Let's kick into it. Let's talk a little bit about why we need alternative energy. The reason we need alternative energy is because fossil fuels might be killing everything and everyone. The environment, humans, everything. It's all being damaged by burning fossil fuels. So a fossil fuel, you've probably heard that term before. Maybe you're not actually familiar with what a fossil fuel is. But according to the few definitions that we've found, a fossil fuel is basically a buried combustible geologic deposit. It's organic material that's been exposed to heat and pressure in the Earth's crust over hundreds of millions of years. That could mean a lot of different things, oil, coal, natural gas. Basically, it's a hydrocarbon, which is a chain of carbon and hydrogen that can be broken up to create energy. It's known as a non-renewable resource. There's a big difference between non-renewable and renewable energy. Non-renewable resources can't be replenished over a short period. For example, oil takes hundreds of millions of years of heat and pressure to create. And there are four main non-renewable energy sources. So crude oil is a big one, but there's also coal and natural gas. And of course, some of you might not remember, uranium which is a non-renewable energy source for nuclear energy. All non-renewable energy sources come out of the ground, and all fossil fuels are considered non-renewable, but not all non-renewable energy sources are fossil fuels. Remember, there's uranium is tucked in there. Fossil fuels are specifically based on organic material that's been converted into this hydrocarbon-based fuel source. So think ancient animals, plants, a lot of undersea life that died, was left at the bottom of an ancient ocean, or was part of an ancient forest that were then compressed over millions of years and converted into oil. Uranium doesn't count there because uranium is a mineral and has to be mined and refined in order to be used in nuclear energy, not unlike oil that has to be drilled for and refined. But renewable energy sources, on the other hand, are things like solar and wind, and they're replenished naturally over a very short period of time. We're getting new solar energy all the time. There's wind moving around the planet all the time. So if we take all of that stuff out of the ground. We start burning it. We start converting those hydrocarbons into energy. What happens? Isn't that terrible? Isn't it bad for everybody? Yes, of course it is. It's terrible. It's bad for all of the humanity and all of the earth and all of everything. Why? Because it has a byproduct of greenhouse gases. Now, fossil fuels and greenhouse gases are terms that have been thrown around a lot in the last 25 years. Greenhouse gases are a very specific kind of gas or grouping of gases. When you hear the words greenhouse gases, what we're really talking about is mostly carbon dioxide, CO2. But it also could be nitrous oxide, fluorinated gases, which are like CFCs or chlorofluorocarbons, ozone, which is O3, which is produced by electrical motors. And there's also methane, which is 20 times worse than CO2 in terms of its greenhouse effect. So carbon dioxide is a majority of this, though, and carbon dioxide is responsible for basically helping heat up our planet. 
Greenhouse gases are any gas in the atmosphere that's capable of absorbing infrared radiation and thereby trapping and holding heat in the atmosphere. Any increase in heat in the atmosphere is uh, called the greenhouse effect. The reason it's called that is because if you've ever been in a greenhouse, it's clear and the sun gets trapped in there and it warms it up. When we get to global warming, which is the entire globe being affected by greenhouse gases, does this all make sense? Because I feel like it should. That's bad. I'm just going to say one more time. Bad. On a day-to-day basis, burning of fossil fuels is literally affecting every single person on our planet. It's not just that I'm burning them and the people around me. It's going into the atmosphere and spreading across the whole Earth. And there are all sorts of different pollutants produced by fossil fuel combustion. Carbon monoxide, nitrogen oxides, sulfur oxides. Hydrocarbons are a byproduct of burning hydrocarbons because they don't burn perfectly. Nitrogen oxides and hydrocarbons, for example, combine in the atmosphere on their own to form tropospheric ozone which is a major cause of smog, which irritates the lungs, can cause bronchitis and pneumonia, can decrease resistance to respiratory infections, not to mention it just gets on everything. Have you seen any of these articles where they like wash buildings that are 100 years old and it turns out they were really pretty underneath all that crap? Smog is everywhere and it settles on the earth and causes all sorts of issues. That's just one example of the things that are being caused by pollutants. I mean, if you ask me, it's very difficult to even test for all the things that pollution is doing to us because how do you get away from it? It's everywhere. Carbon monoxide is a byproduct of the combustion of fossil fuels as well. It's just CO. And its exposure can cause headaches. It can put stress on people who have heart disease. And you maybe even have a CO or carbon monoxide detector in your house because it's odorless, it's colorless, and at high concentrations can be deadly. So they want to make sure that you don't have it in your house like a smoke detector. All that being said, non-renewable resources are limited. There's only so many of them. According to the BBC... International organizations estimate that if the world's demand for energy from fossil fuels continues at the present rate, we're going to run out of crude oil in the next 50 years. Natural gas has about 70 more years and coal has about 250. So if we run out of those things and our entire infrastructure is built on powering the planet by destroying it and burning those things, then what do we do? We're screwed. I'm just going to throw that out there. We're in trouble. We're screwed. And honestly, 50 years, that means I'm still going to be alive and we're going to run out, possibly. They don't know exactly how much there is, but that's pretty bad. And consumption is only increasing. If we act quick, we can make some changes. But right now, we're making the wrong ones. We're creating new pipelines to move more oil around more quickly. We're drilling in places we never would have drilled before because maybe like the Arctic where they're protecting it before. Now they're like, oh, well, you can just drill there. There's also fracking where they're literally exploding under the ground so they can get little bits of oil and hydrocarbon that's left in there. We are doing all sorts of things to get fossil fuels and the sun is throwing energy at us constantly all day, every day. Wind is moving around our planet all day, every day, and we can use that for energy. And instead, we're, you know, destroying our planet, trying to find that one last bits of energy that we can, we can suck out of there. And of course, that being said, renewable resources are not perfect. Solar energy is very expensive. Wind energy is annoying for some people and can be very expensive as well. And people are worried about 
things like this because they don't always understand them. And I'm here with my good friend, Julian Huguet, also from D News. He is a big fan of renewable energy. He literally has it on his T-shirt. But is there a best alternative energy, Julian? In my opinion, my personal favesies is nuclear power. Oh, nuclear power. Nuclear power is so cool. It's just a good source of energy. It's so amazing and much maligned. And so I am here today because I want to defend nuclear power and maybe change a few minds about all the amazing things it has to offer. Okay, and since I also like nuclear power, I will devil's advocate your defense of nuclear power. So when it comes to nuclear power, I think we should break down a little bit about what that is. So it's better than coal and gas. I mean, I guess. You're still pulling the fuel out of the ground, right? And it's, of course, radioactive. Well, as you mentioned earlier, the problem with coal and natural gas is they produce air pollutants, primarily the one we always talk about, carbon dioxide, greenhouse gases affecting the entire planet. So that's bad. And then there's also other air pollutants. In fact, I found a a 2013 MIT study that said uh, annually in the United States, 52,000 premature deaths can be attributed to air pollution from electrical generation. Right. How many people have died from uh, nuclear power production in the United States? I mean, probably a lot, right? If it's radioactive and there have been problems in the past. And of course, I'm concerned about all of those problems because I am defending nuclear power's horribleness. Do you consider zero a lot? Because zero people, uh, zero deaths have been attributed to commercial nuclear power production in the United States. Wow. So civilian nuclear power is actually comparatively a lot safer than coal and natural gas. Zero is a lot less than I would have guessed. It's, it's uh, 52,000 less than 52,000 yeah, uh, annually. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's annually, not just total. 52,000 people annually have premature deaths attributed to air pollution. Zero all time from nuclear production. And nuclear is bigger in the states than you might think. About 19.5% of our power comes from nuclear power plants. There are 99 currently active in the states running absolutely fine with no problems. The only time you hear about nuclear power is when something goes wrong. That is absolutely true. And speaking of that, things do go wrong. We had Three Mile Island. We've had Chernobyl in the past, not in the United States, but still a big deal. Mm -hmm. We also had the Fukushima Daiichi disaster in Japan. All of these things are terrible. Right. And they produce radioactivity that then is spread out into the environment. Correct. Uh, Fukushima Daiichi, might as well focus on that. That was the most Most recent. recent. Uh, When that happened, uh, a tsunami hit the nuclear power plant and it destroyed the generators that were needed for the backup coolant system. Reactor overheats, uh, hydrogen gas explosion blows its top and it releases all this nuclear waste into the environment. However, for us over here in California, a lot of people were worried about nuclear radiation along the coast. I live in Los Angeles. I have seen zero three-legged people over there. It actually is... I'm, I'm really bad at defending nuclear energy. But there's really <laughs> nothing to worry about when it comes to the radiation from Fukushima Daiichi it's here true. in California. Over here in the it States. It was terrible for the people surrounding Fukushima and the wildlife in the ocean outside of the plant. However, in anywhere else, it's, it's fine. It, the levels are so low that it doesn't matter. But that being said, radiation, when people say the word radiation, it freaks people out. Sure. And they don't like the idea that nuclear power can have radioactive waste in terms of radiation from disasters right. like Fukushima, but also from just radioactive waste in general. What nobody mentions about the Fukushima Daiichi disaster, though, is there was another nuclear power plant uh, fairly close by. Japan had tons of nuclear power plants. Uh, one of these newer ones was hit by pretty much the same earthquakes, similar waves. It was more modern, though. Fukushima Daiichi was from late 60s, early 70s, and the design was... Uh, 
more imperfect. The more modern nuclear power plant had no problem with the backup uh, generators and backup coolant systems staying online. It didn't uh, overheat, and you heard nothing about it because of that. You only right. heard about this old power plant, which was also mismanaged. An analogy I really like is uh, a comparison to air travel, right? Airplanes fly millions of people all over the world. It's the and safest form of travel. It is, technically, and very rarely anything goes wrong because the airplanes are maintained, there's strict regulations, and yet when a crash happens, it's all you hear about, and people are always scared to fly. And I think nuclear has a very similar correlation. It's very safe. It's used much more widespread than people uh, believe. And yet, as soon as something goes wrong, all people want to talk about is how nuclear power is unsafe. Wow. But with proper engineering and proper management, nuclear power can be a very safe option. And that's the key. Very proper management, proper safety protocols. So a little bit about nuclear power. Nuclear power it uses small pellets of uranium fuel, usually that's the most popular, and then it takes those pellets and either smushes atoms together using what's called fusion or breaks them apart, right. which is called fission. Uh, fusion is definitely safer, but we haven't figured it out yet. Uh, fusion, luckily, is constantly providing us with energy from the sun, mm -hmm. but you need a large, high temperature, very pressurized state to get these hydrogen atoms to react with each other, and you need something, you know, the size of a sun. So here on Earth, we haven't managed to keep uh, fusion reactions sustainable. It takes more energy to get them going right. than it does, than they, uh, than they emit. Little output. So right now, uh, our technology that we've been using is uh, fission Based. We take very heavy elements, we bombard them with neutrons, they split, and the reaction releases energy. We use that energy to heat water, turn it into steam, run it through a turbine, condense the water, do it all over again. Right. So you're not producing any uh, greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide or methane, you're just producing steam. That's what's coming out of those big coolant towers that people like... And is that Photoshop. radioactive? No, it is not. Oh. The steam coming out of a nuclear power plant is from a separate loop than the water used to cool the reactor. Got it. So the steam that's driving the turbine is not radioactive. Got it. So uh, here's some data that I found on nuclear power. Each plant is generating about $16 million in state and local taxes. The U.S. nuclear industry generates around $470 million per year, and it generates a lot of power in the United States. I mean, it says here in 1980, nuclear plants produced 250 billion kilowatt hours. Uh, you can think of it in terms of percentage. For the United States annually, nuclear power is 19.5% of our annual power production. Wind is 4.4% oh, of our many. annual power production. And solar is 0.4% of our annual production. And the problem with these other uh, renewable sources like wind and solar is they can't be scaled up to meet demand mm -hmm. as it happens. Uh, nuclear power plant, you can, you know, turn up the generator, produce more electricity when uh, you need more. You can't make it sunnier. You can't make it windier. And mm -hmm. any energy that you don't use, the way our grid is set up right now, you lose. We don't have any way to store that and use it for later. But, okay, it's not going to kill anybody around. It's not going to produce problems with the radioactivity leaving the plant as long as safety protocols. So as somebody who's not a fan of nuclear energy in this discussion, what about nuclear waste? I mean, nuclear toxic waste is a huge problem. You have to take these pellets of used nuclear fuel and you have to store them forever. I mean, not literally forever, but longer than even our civilization might last, there's going to be this 
nuclear waste. And that just seems awful and scary for a lot of people. That's uh, that's probably the biggest buzzword is radiation and radioactive waste. And it's terrifying to think of how long these things are going to be radioactive and potentially dangerous. There's a myth that uh, there is no safe level of radiation. You'll hear that trumpeted by a lot of people who are anti-nuclear. Uh, that's not true because being alive, you are constantly subject to radiation. A banana is a teeny tiny itsy bitsy radioactive. True. Just a little bit. Fiesta wear. It is. Responds to Geiger counters. The red one. Mm-hmm. I have it so at home. There, there's constantly radiation. There is a safe level of radiation that you can be exposed to, but even still, this waste is above that. However, the amount that of nuclear waste that's produced is so minuscule. You get so much energy from uranium. The amount that you actually have to dispose of, if you were to take all that high-level radiation, uh, radioactive waste, and put it together, you could fit it in a football field uh, stacked 10 feet high. That seems like not a lot of waste. It's, it's not a huge amount. You have to be very careful about where it's stored and uh, watch it very carefully and make sure that you know it doesn't leak or break out. But I believe that humanity is up to the challenge. And don't fool yourself. Other renewable power sources aren't completely clean. Solar, everybody thinks, is this wonderful, totally clean energy source. But photovoltaic cells uh, produce toxic wastewater. It's uh, laced with cadmium, which is highly carcinogenic and seeps into groundwater if you're not careful about disposing of that too. So nuclear isn't the only one with issues about disposing its waste. Right. On top of that, and I'm just going to drop this whole defending the the other side thing because i think we can all at this point kind of agree that maybe nuclear isn't the evil thing that we all thought and i would like to mention that coal produces 1562 million tons annually of waste that's way more than nuclear energy and when we're talking about nuclear waste a lot of people picture you know i guess the simpsons like yellow barrels stamped with nuclear and a big green grossness in it. But in reality, it's pieces of equipment that were used in nuclear plants. It's nuclear fissile material that has been spent that some of that is also disposed of. But things like wrenches that were used to maintain things inside of the nuclear reactor close to the radioactive center eventually will have to be retired and then stored. So we're talking about pieces of equipment that are radioactive, but they're not so radioactive that they weren't used by humans in nuclear plants all the way up until their retirement. The uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission has standards, uh, guidelines on how much radiation human beings working in nuclear power plants can be exposed to. And they've done studies on their risks of cancer uh, over that time. And the increased risk of cancer from nuclear power plant workers is negligible. Uh, The amount of radiation that these people are exposed to and working with is basically not affecting their risk of developing cancer at all, just maybe a few more people per thousand. It's very, very minuscule. And yet you get this abundant energy that doesn't contribute to what I think is the biggest problem we have right now, climate change. Right. That's a global issue. That's something that's going to affect uh, food for uh, so many people that can't afford to take a hit in food supplies. And it's going to affect weather and storms and uh, more people are going to die of heat stroke and all these other problems that are going to be manifest that you just don't have if you have nuclear power instead. Right. And on top of that, people actually really like nuclear power. The people that don't like it are usually very vocal. But when surveyed, a 2012 study found 57% of citizens supported nuclear power. And in a 2013 study, 81% of citizens who lived near the power plants. So it was in their backyards, you know, to use that 
that kind of term, they were also in favor of it. And I mean, people love this power because it doesn't feel like you're hurting the earth quite as often as when you look over at a coal plant and you see it spewing into the air all the time. Right. You know, it's much easier to uh, avoid a, a football field for 10,000 years than it is to not be able to breathe by the time we get there. So there are two major ways to create nuclear energy, fusion and fission. Right. Which one you want to tackle? Uh, I'll talk about fission. Okay, I'll get fusion. It's a good in. place to start. Fission is where we're at right now. You can achieve fission by taking uh, very heavy elements that are radioactive, meaning that they're unstable. They're trying to find a balance between uh, protons and neutrons that gets them at a stable level. So occasionally they'll release other particles. You bombard them with a neutron, they split, and from the uh, reaction, from E equals MC squared, their mass mm-hmm. is slightly less, so they release huge amounts of energy mm-hmm. from very little, very little amounts of uh, actual material. So that is what our uh, nuclear reactors use right now. In the United States, primarily, we use light water reactors that use slightly enriched uranium-235. Uh, so slightly enriched uranium, meaning it's just a little bit uranium-235, mostly uranium-238. Splits the U-235, you get other radioactive stuff and all this energy. But the end goal, though, really, of uh, energy science and nuclear power is going to be fusion. Yeah, fusion is awesome. So to use where he started, if fission uses very heavy elements that are at the you know at one end of the periodic table and they smash something into them so that they split apart, fusion uses small light elements, hydrogen, the lightest element, and smashes them into each other to create slightly heavier elements using the same E equals MC squared idea, where you're conserving all of this information so that you can get all of this energy. Uh, Fusion is something we haven't figured out yet. No, not here on Earth, and not in a way that is sustainable. It's a very pie-in-the-sky idea. But if we can figure it out, it's going to be pretty much the end of our energy woes. Hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe. It's the simplest. It's the easiest to find. Uh, Ideally, you know, at some point we're going to use hydrogen 2 and 3 that we could maybe even mine from the moon, but that's That's a whole other thing, man. That's a whole other thing. I love it. It's a whole other thing. But the point is we're never going to run out. Right Right. now in the uh, crust of the Earth, we think we have at present rates we're using it about another 230 years worth of uranium. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we pull it out from the salt water, there's like 0.003 parts per million in the in seawater. So right. that's enough for another you know 60,000 years. So even though we have enough uranium to potentially last you know 60,000 years, it's still producing this radioactive waste. And even though I've defended that earlier, it's not the end game. On right. the other hand, though, hydrogen, hydrogen. When you fuse together hydrogen, you're not really getting any radioactive material. Now, bombarding it with uh, neutrons would probably leave the surrounding you know, reactor radioactive. Mm-hmm. But if you stop the bombardment, you only have radioactivity at that reactor for about another 50 to 100 years. Right. And it, the point is, fusion also is more efficient than fission. Fusion generates three to four times the energy that fission does right now. So imagine putting in the same amount of energy and getting out four times more energy. Fusion primarily uses actually isotopes of hydrogen, deuterium, tritium, and it's way safer, as for the reasons that Julian just listed, that if you stop the reaction, you stop the danger from that reaction. So if something goes wrong, you just kind of stop everything. The hydrogen 
is done. Yep. And nothing is fusing anymore. It's over. You just pull the plug. There's no risk of that overheating like you have with our fission reactors. So the reason we don't have fusion right now, Julian? Uh, the biggest hurdle to it is it takes more energy to get a fusion reaction going than it puts out. So it's not really worth it to uh, get these these hydrogen atoms to fuse together. You have to get them to overcome their electromagnetic repulsion of each other. And if you're in somewhere with a high temperature, high pressure, like say the core of a star, right. that's possible. Replicating those uh, circumstances on Earth, though, is something that we haven't been able to do in a way that's worth it yet, sustainable and uh, economical. And it's something Right now that- we're putting in more than we're getting out. Correct. So it's not worth it. While at the same time, energy from fission is one of the cheapest energy sources. Right. So we're just smashing things into other things and saying, look, energy, great. Piece awesome. of cake, right? Easy. So right now that's the stopgap. But I would love if the public had a, a rekindled interest in nuclear power because then we could have these uh, stopgaps that would prevent more CO2 from getting in the atmosphere and at the same time develop nuclear fusion and be on our way to total energy security. Let me just be clear. Nuclear power seems complicated, but it's actually fairly easy now that we've figured it out. Uh, to, there's this guy, his name is David Hahn. He's a Boy Scout. He was from my home state of Michigan. And in 1994, when he was 17, he made a nuclear breeder reactor in his mom's garden shed. How? He took a mercurium from smoke detectors. That's the thing that makes your smoke detector detect the smoke. He took thorium from camping lanterns. He took radium from old clocks, the things in clocks from the early 20th century that made the hands glow and the numbers glow. It was a paint. And inside of that paint was radium, which was had, which is radioactive. Hmm. And so the, literally you were looking at a clock that was glowing radiation into you. And people are really concerned about other things that are crazy in their lives. And tritium uh, from gun sites, which people also use all the time, lead and lithium from batteries and from other sources, pretty common actually. And he took all of these things and he attempted to create a breeder reactor, which is a reactor that produces energy that it can then use as material to produce more energy. And he didn't succeed in creating the reactor entirely, but he used so much of the nuclear energy and, and used a Bunsen burner to like make things. And it was very like low budget, but he did it so well that he was able to detect radiation when he was on his block in the car with his Geiger counter. So he dismantled the whole thing. He buried a lot of it, and he kept some of it in his trunk until he got pulled over. And he said to the police, no, you should probably not look in my trunk. And then the Nuclear Regulatory Commission got involved. Exactly what the police want to hear, right? Right. No, 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 don't look at the trunk. It's just a nuclear reactor. It's nuclear stuff. Don't worry about it. You won't get it. (laughs) Anyway, so this kid was able to create this system, and yes, it didn't work entirely, but those things are just part of nature. It's out there in nature, and we just have to know how to make it work. People freak out about the radioactive byproducts of of nuclear power all the time, but remember, it's still using uranium, which is a radioactive element that's out there in nature already. I hate this idea that like, oh, if it's not natural, or if it's natural, it's safe. That's That's not necessarily true at all. If it's handled correctly, it's safe. Right. That's the big difference. If you can do something smart and safely and uh, with the right uh, countermeasures to protect yourself, we can do nuclear power safely. We can store the byproducts safely. It just takes forethought and effort. So the dream, though, when it comes to nuclear fusion or fission is actually cold fusion, which is basically saying, hey, son, 
I can do one better. Mm. I can do this at room temperature. And again, room temperature is relative. The sun is millions of degrees. Cold fusion, which you've probably heard in science fiction movies, is essentially fusion at a temperature that's manageable. A fusion that they call room temperature or, you know, a temperature less akin to solar yeah. temperatures. You know, like compared to millions of degrees... 20 right. Celsius is pretty, pretty yeah. tame. And even thousands Celsius yeah, is pretty tame. Pretty, pretty doable. So that's the, the dream. But there's something in between what we're doing now and cold fusion, and that is the thorium reactor, which I know is one of your personal favorite things. So a thorium reactor we've actually been asked to talk about by commenters. So here you go, commenters. Thorium. Thorium is amazing. Thorium is a potential uh, nuclear fuel that hasn't been used because it could be used in uh, molten salts. So you get salt really, really hot, you know, a couple hundred degrees Celsius. It becomes a liquid and it can be used to uh, cool the reactor. And if the reactor, you know, gets too cold and the salt just freezes up and reaction stops, or if it gets too hot, you can have another salt plug that uh, melts, drains all the fissile material away, and it's safe. So a thorium reactor is potentially self-regulating, which is amazing. Amazing. That's amazing. It breeds its own fuel. If you hit it with a neutron after, uh, you know, like a few days or a couple weeks, it turns into uranium-233, which you can split and create energy from. And on top of that, there's tons and tons of thorium in the Earth's crust. It's much more abundant than uranium. Uh, uranium in the Earth's crust will last us about another 230 years at present rates, maybe 60,000 years if we want to pull it from uh, salt water. But thorium could easily meet energy demands for possibly up to 10,000 years. We've just got to figure out how to keep the salt from corroding uh, the insides of the reactor. So it's uh, a very small hurdle for thorium. In fact, China wants to develop a thorium reactor in the next 25 years. Wow, that's soon. That is soon. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. And if they do that, China obviously has a big problem with pollution. They're investing heavily in nuclear power. If they master thorium, you can bet you're going to start seeing thorium reactors all around the world. Mm -hmm. That would be an amazing future. Not the end-all, be-all of nuclear, because I still believe it's fusion, but I would love to see a thorium reactor at some point in my lifetime. And thorium comes from, it's a waste product of things that we're already doing, like heavy metal mining. Correct. And that's not like heavy metal, like... Yeah, you just dig down and you find Slayer. Like literally heavy heavy metal. It's like slipknot mining. (laughs) Is that heavy metal? I don't know anything about heavy metal. I don't think so. So nuclear, it's not as scary, but it's definitely our best hope for future alternative energy. Right. And if we don't fix this problem, we're kind of screwed. Mm-hmm. Because we're just going to keep dumping 1,500 million tons of CO2 into the atmosphere every year until we do something else. Right. Uh, I'll end it this way. You don't ever get something for nothing in energy production. Every method, every alternative energy has some cost in there you're going to have to deal with. So what compromise are you most okay with making? You can find Julian at jhug00. Thanks for being on, Julian. Thank you for having me, Trace. Yay, energy. But what countries are leading the way in alternative energy? Who's winning it right now? Who's killing it? The USA kind of sucks at alternative energy. We're not really good at it. We, we aren't putting the money or the effort in the way that some of these other countries are. According to Bloomberg New Energy Finance's latest energy investment report, China is leading the world in investing in renewable energy. We come in second in the U.S. We boosted our investment 8%, which is 
you know, fine. It's about 51.8 billion and that puts us in second place. But investing in future renewables needs to be backed up by building renewables. Japan is actually up to 41.3 billion. It's the biggest market for solar power, which means they're actually doing stuff with solar power. Europe grew their investment 1% despite their funding for offshore wind, which is a whole different thing. They're building offshore wind plants in Europe as well. And that's not included in this. So this is a huge thing. In the U.S., we're like investing in stuff, but we aren't constructing it all over the United States in the way that some of these other countries are. Around the world, 100 gigawatts of solar and wind power capacity were built in 2014, and that's up from 74 gigawatts in 2013. And the world energy consumption makes that kind of dwarfed, though. It's 17.7 terawatts of energy is consumed globally. So 100 gigawatts of solar and wind sounds great on paper, but that's, you know, not that much. And and in case you didn't do that math, that's 17,700 gigawatts globally. So we cut out about 100 of that. It's not that much. According to ecowatch.com, there were five records broken in 2014. Uh, Denmark set a new world record for wind production. That's pretty great. From wind alone, Denmark got 39.1% of all of their electricity. They're currently on track to get 50% of all their power from renewables by 2020. And they're planning on being completely renewable run by 2050. That's incredible. That's incredible. In the UK, wind power rose 15% last year, which is more than any other year. A Berlin-based think tank announced that renewable energy was the biggest contributor to Germany's electricity supply. In December of 2014, wind turbines supplied the electrical needs of 164% of Scottish households. That's more than there are people in Scotland. That's 3.96 million homes. That's crazy. They did that all with wind turbines all by themselves. Ireland hit two wind energy records in 2014 as well. They, uh, these are according to figures by EarGrid, which is their, their Ireland's grid system. From January of 2015, wind energy created 1,942 megawatts of energy. That's enough to power 1.26 million homes. It's pretty awesome. By 2020, the European Union is actually mandating that 20% of their energy come from renewable resources. Every member state of the EU has a different exact target, but they, on average, will have a 20% figure. That's incredible. That will reduce Europe's greenhouse gas emissions by 80 to 95% by 2050, which is below the levels they were emitting in 1990. So they're going back in time with their emission levels, and that's insane. But hands down, the best country for alternative energy, that's hard to say. Yes, China invests the most. And yes, we invest the second most. And yes, Denmark has almost 50% of their energy from renewables. But no one country is doing it the best so far. Everybody's just got goals. We're just kicking the energy football down the field every year. And unfortunately, the U.S. being the richest and arguably the most powerful country on the planet isn't kicking it as far as maybe we should, in my opinion. Obviously, we want to move away from using oil. Those fossil fuels are damaging our environment. They're damaging our planet. They are damaging us. And we mentioned some great alternative energy sources earlier. But the ones that we mention all the time, solar and wind, those are popular. They're cool. And they're easy for people to understand because they've had a lot of press explaining what those things do. But There are other ways to generate electricity other than solar and wind and nuclear, of course. 
For example, geothermal power. It's very, very popular in some parts of the world, especially in places that are volcanically based like Iceland. But the problem is you can't always use those things in places that don't have volcanic activity. How geothermal works is it uses the heat energy of the earth to generate electricity. Just really quick, Power Plants 101. All of our power plants basically use mechanical energy to generate electricity. So a wind turbine is being turned by the wind. A water turbine or hydroelectric dam is being turned by the water. Coal power plants, steam is their main thing, which is turning that turbine. Nuclear is the same. Geothermal is the same. They're all using heat or something to turn a turbine. We could also have floating windmills. Right now you picture a windmill, it's a big post with like an airplane-y looking thing at the top, looks like a big pinwheel. And as the wind moves by, it turns that turbine. Why do they have to be anchored on the ground? What if we built a giant blimp, but inside of it, it was like a cylinder and we could put one of those three rotor blades right in the middle? Those floating windmills have already been thought up and they're already starting to be built. They rise a 1,000 feet off the ground, and they're connected via very high-strength tethers that run the electricity from a 1,000 feet in the air all the way back down to the ground. The advantages of these floating windmills is, one, they're not attached to the ground. A lot of people complain about wind power you know, killing birds or creating noise pollution because they do make that kind of sound. I've stood next to them. It can get kind of loud. But... Birds only fly about 500 feet in the air. So 1,000 feet in the air, you are limiting that problem. You can put them over water, and when you get that high up in the air, wind speeds are two to three times higher. And computers on board can bring down the blimp if wind speeds tend to get too high or a storm setting in. So you're talking about a thing that can generate electricity and kind of is smart enough to not hurt birds, not cause noise pollution, and protect itself in case of conditions that don't work. It's just a floating version of the standard wind power system, but it can be done over water, it can be done on land, and it's kind of out of the way. Another way that we can generate crazy amounts of energy is microwave transmitting solar satellites. This one's a little bit of a mind blow, but essentially it's solar panels on satellites in space. So instead of taking a solar panel and putting it in a desert somewhere where it's a sunny a lot, we're going to put it in space where it's always sunny. It's always sunny in space, not Philadelphia, literally in space. They put it 35,000 kilometers away from Earth and they park it there. Then the sun, sending all of its energy out, doesn't get blocked by Earth's atmosphere. About a third of solar energy is reflected back into space from our atmosphere, so we already have that benefit. Every hour, though, more solar energy reaches Earth than humans could even use in a year. So if we're sitting in space, we're collecting so much more energy. Now, I know what you're thinking. How do you get that energy back to the ground? You can't just attach a big tether and, you know, plug it in. It's a little more complicated than that. There are giant radiation systems on the satellite and on the ground, and they're pointed directly at each other. Now, what happens is those microwaves hit each other, and transmit that power from one place to another. Think of it like your wireless charging systems now, but over a significantly greater distance. There's a lot of power loss there, but you're already gaining so much by being in space that it's possible. The big drawback of this guy is it's really, really expensive. <laughs> Production costs tens of billions of dollars. And I mean, launching rockets is expensive. 
to launch a pound is like $1,000 or something. So considering the distance of these satellites and the amount of money it would take to launch them, it's a pretty unlikely scenario. But the amount of electricity that we could produce from this system is, is insane. And just for perspective, these satellites are 35,000 kilometers out there. The ISS, the International Space Station, it's only 250 kilometers up. So these are really far out there. So another alternative energy source that gets some press akin to solar and wind, but uses a slightly different medium, a slightly different fluid, is wave-powered energy, tide-powered energy gathering. Again, we're turning turbines or we're moving things to create energy. 70% of the Earth's surface is water. So if we were to harvest the movement of that water around the Earth, it's constantly moving, we could produce 80,000 terawatt hours of electricity per year. That's five times the amount that we would need to meet everybody on the Earth's global energy use. And it works a lot of different ways. The main ways are these three. Oscillating water column, OWC, works a lot like a piston in a cylinder. The waves rise inside the column and that pushes air up through the turbine. When the wave recedes, air is sucked back, passing through the turbine again and back into the column. So it's just a piston of water moving up and down, turning the turbine. There's the surface-following attenuator, also known as a line absorber, which looks like a giant sea snake. This one is my favorite because it's just so weird. And it just sits there in the wave, and as the wave moves, it kind of flexes. And that flexing The moving of up and down generates electricity. There's the buoyancy unit, which are buoys attached to the bottom of the ocean. So when the waves move up and down, those buoys then generate pumps to make electricity. So these are three different ways that we can generate power from waves. Now, all three of these could be used in the same place at the same time. Something that you need to realize when it comes to wind power and wave power and some of these other things is we're never going to cool off the earth with geothermal energy. We're never going to stop the waves by harvesting energy from them. We're never going to slow down the wind by trying to put resistance on it with these turbines. Nothing that we can do is going to stop this amount of energy that's going to be floating around our planet all the time. We just have to learn to harvest it. And that's where some of the even smaller projects can come in. For example, inmates in Brazil can reduce their sentence by riding stationary bikes that are attached to car batteries. Those car batteries are then used to power street lamps in the local plaza. 14 bicycles require 10 hours of pedaling, charges one battery, enough to power 10 street lamps. Pretty awesome. This is energy that we just have. People can create their own energy. You don't have to be in prison to do this. You can do this at home. You can also recharge your cell phone by breathing using something called, I think it's piezoelectricity. You can check me on that, uh, listeners. And that's just an idea right now, but essentially you're recharging your cell phone by breathing. The movement of your body is recharging things. So this guy, Paulo Lamoglia, he created an industrial concept design in 2011 that won an award. It's not real yet, but it's gonna be. And essentially, you get a face mask, you can wear it around, and the face mask converts individual breaths into electrical energy. Now, we got the idea from watching kids blow on pinwheels, because when you blow on a pinwheel, it spins a turbine. Sounds familiar? because you can generate energy from that. On top of that, there are dozens and dozens of other ways we can generate energy. You could put things under the road and as cars drive over them, that movement can generate energy. You can put 
things in your clothing. And as you walk around, it generates tiny pieces of energy. You can even put patches on your skin that when you move them, it generates electricity. People have tried so many things in order to get electricity out of our environment. You can take dog poop and you can use that to create energy. The feces of dog poop has methane that can be used like natural gas. Microorganisms in the poop give off the methane and it's a byproduct of that that can be used to power lights. You can use sugar and turn that into hydrogen, which can be used in fuel cell technology. You can also use dead human bodies to generate electricity. You know, we can use ourselves. A crematorium in the UK got an idea. After an environmental review came out, that said crematorium chimneys were releasing too much smoke into the air, they found a way to use the gases released from the cremation process to heat things. And heating, that's just another form of energy generation. So weird, so cool. My favorite of all of these is geothermal, but I don't live in Iceland, so it's kind of difficult to get. As always, thank you for listening. You can find us at Seeker over on YouTube, youtube.com slash Seeker, on Facebook, on Instagram. You name it, we are out there. Just look for Seeker. You can also find me at Trace Dominguez. And you can find Julian at jhug00. Thanks again to him for coming in and talking to us. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll be back next week for more. Thank you for listening to Seeker Plus, and we'll see you next time. Seeker.